Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey, everybody. Fantastic episode about wine today. Uh, really interesting one. I think you guys are going to dig it. I just got slightly distracted because there's a bunny outside of a window, and I like bunnies. All right, focus, Shane. Um, so one, one, the very. We're going to keep this intro nice and quick. The one little thing that I wanted to mention again. I started the Here We Are podcast Twitter account which is here we pod Um, and if you go on there i'll be uh, tweeting stuff about past guests i think i'm going to start following some other um like science news sites and stuff like that and and start following um more um potential guests as well because i don't have there's not a ton of people that i'm following a lot of my past guests don't have a twitter account or they're um, not very active on it so i'm still making some changes to that and figuring out ways to make it more informative and entertaining so you can go there for all of my science posts if uh if you get sick of my um dumb jokes on my at shane comedy twitter uh, that might be a better source for you even if you um don't typically use twitter if you have a twitter account if you could go on and follow it even if you have no intention of ever looking at it even if you mute me um because it's brand new and podcast twitter accounts in general have uh, a low amount of followers it would be really nice just to boost those numbers a little bit so that when people that might be interested see it see that more people that you know give the illusion that it's popular which is just what you have to do when you're getting things off of the ground and that will help me with um uh you know i reach out to a lot of uh a lot of very busy people sometimes um when i reach out to people they want to know how many listeners the podcast has and that sort of thing so this this twitter account might be something that they have a look at when uh determining whether they want to participate as a guest and uh so it would be very helpful to get a boost in numbers it's obviously going to seem a bit more impressive if there's 2000 followers rather than the 200 that there are currently and thank you very much to those of you that have um followed it uh, so far and are interacting with me off to a wonderful start and i'm uh looking forward to doing more with that so so that's all um it would be helping me out a bunch and uh, other than that uh you guys are wonderful and enjoy the show are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear Misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are.
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Professor Emeritus Scott Burns, who is in the Department of uh, Geology at Portland State University. Uh, first off, Scott, I learned a new word today. It's emeritus. What does that mean? Emeritus is an old Latin term that means that you're retired. So I'm just finishing up my 46th year since I began teaching at the university level back in 1970. That's amazing, and we're we're going to uh, of of the many things that um, that you're an expert on. Um, wine is uh, is one of them. We're going to be talking a little bit about wine today. Do you, when other scientists um, find out that uh, uh, you know, like psychologists or neuroscientists or whoever you bump into, when they find out that you study wine, do they feel a little foolish for their career <laughs> choices? There's always an interest, no matter who you're talking to, uh, They uh, there is an interest in, in, in what we are doing because a lot of people are interested in wine. Right. Because uh, you get to taste a lot of wine we for do. your job. We do. That's a fantastic thing to get in. How did you get into studying wine in the first place? Were you a, a fan of wine before you... Uh... And, and, and the answer is yes, but then also serendipity in where I was teaching. And so when uh, back in, when I was in college, I was going to Stanford University out in California. And uh, a whole bunch of friends of mine, uh, we would go wine tasting uh, every month uh, in this fledgling new area that was just beginning. This was back in the 60s called the Napa Valley. And the Napa Valley, we would be able to do one end of the valley to the other end in one day, ending up with Charles Krug and Christian Brothers at the end, and then go home. And uh, that would spark my interest in wine. Now, to do the whole Napa Valley takes a month to do half of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has grown in wor- one of the world's premier wine-growing areas. And then I started teaching in 1970 in Switzerland. And this and the college where I was teaching was right in the middle of wine country. Uh, and so in those days, in addition to geology, I was teaching biology. And uh, winemaking is, is a lot of good biology and chemistry. And when you did primary fermentation, secondary fermentation, and measuring, measuring the sugars and the alcohol concentrations like that, students can do it. So I made wine every year with my students. In the, mm. We go down into the vineyards, pick, pick the chasselous grape, this is white grape, uh, and then we would make wine, and then we would uh, uh, you, it would clarify, go through primary fermentation, secondary fermentation by Christmas time. Uh, we put it in the bottle, cork it up. The students would design a label, and then they take a bottle of wine home to their parents and show them that education was relevant. And so, <laughs> so as a professor, um, you got to uh, write. And so, my first publication was in 1976 in the Journal of College Science Teaching, and it was "Science Can Be Fun and Tasty Wine." making in the lab. Mm. And so I've been in, interested in that for many, many years. I came back to Oregon. I grew up here in Oregon uh, in 1990. Uh, and one of my areas of research is soil. And, and so one of my graduate classes, I had uh, students do projects, and, uh, and I was interested in wine. Uh, and nobody knew what the soils were that the grapes were being grown on. Uh, and so I had one student kind of put together a database, and then we've expanded on that over the years. Uh, and and wh- what's happened is it's taken off in the study of the relationship between soils and geology and wine since that time. And so in, not only in Oregon, but I've had a chance to visit most of the major grape-growing areas in the world and interact with other people who are interested in this. And so this is the whole area of what we call terroir. It's a good French term. T-E-R-R-O-I-R, and terroir is the relationship between geology, soils, climate, and wine. And every time you have a bottle of wine that you taste, um, there, there are certain characteristics that you have got, and five of those come from terroir. One is the grape type that you have, and a Cabernet is going to be different from a Riesling, different from a Zinfandel, etc. Number two, what the geology underneath the, uh, the ground, you have 10 macronutrients, six micronutrients that are very, very essential uh, that come out of the ground and go into the grapes and it create the flavors. Uh, thirdly, uh, the climate. You need to, ha- you really want to have a dry climate. So the temperature goes up in the daytime and down at night, up and down. And the more up and downs, you have more complexity. Uh, uh, and then you want to have good water holding capacity. Here in Oregon, we don't irrigate the grapes. And so you need to have enough silt and clay in the soils in order to have water 
late in the season to keep the plants alive. Mm. Uh, and then you want to, in the northern hemisphere, have a south-facing slope, maximize the heat units. Uh, and we have an elevation. Below 600 feet, the soils are just way too um, nutrient-rich, too much calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and phosphorus. And then above 800, 900 feet, the grapes won't ripen in a normal year because it's too cold uh, late in the season or early in the season. And you don't get up to the year 23, 24 bricks or 23, 24% sugar. Those five characteristics I showed you, that is terroir. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because not only is, is wine a great way to get students interested, I'm sure it was probably one of their favorite classes because they got to learn about wine and make wine and everything, but, but also learning uh, for me has made wine a lot more enjoyable because I still don't really know much of anything, but I used to have no interest in wine whatsoever. And I would, I would drink it here and there because my girlfriend at the time would. And the first time that I got interested in wine was actually in Paris. We went to a wine tasting and, and, uh, Smollier explained everything. And I was sitting there and tasting it. And I, you know, I was just kind of being nice or whatever. And, and he was kind of explaining, oh, you'll notice these different notes and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I did. I was like, oh my gosh, I get, I can taste what he's talking about finally. And, um, and since then, now I, I drink wine probably more than, um, any other. I'm not really a beer guy or anything. Um, and it, it, so it's interesting that as you learn a little more about it, just it, it really increases your, um, your appreciation. I, I was curious, what is it about, um, that re- region, France, that is, uh, that makes them the, you know, world's kind of most, famous wine producers and they all these various different kinds of wine what what is it about the country is it just are they just do they just care more or it or are they blessed with perfect soil or a mixture of both they have a great diversity Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you go way up north in the Alsace area that is very very cool climate then you come further south, you get into the Burgundy area, the land that is very, very similar to Oregon and the Willamette Valley like we have. That's the land of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Uh, and then you go further on south, then you get down into the Bordeaux area. It's a warmer climate. Then that's the land of Cabs, Merlots, and Syrahs. And then over the Rhone, it's Syrahs and all of the uh, Mouvedres and uh, Viognier's, et cetera. Uh, and so you have great diversity. But they've, they've also been controlling um, the, the rules and regulations for making quality wines. And they've been making quality wines for centuries and centuries. Um, and so they're kind of the mecca for making of grapes uh, and wines from the Vitus vinifera. That is the genus species of the grape that most of our wines come from today. And uh, they're the ones that came up with the word terroir. And it means of the, of the ground, of the place, or it's, I say it's the taste of the place. When you go to France and you look at a bottle of wine, it will never ta- tell you what grapes are in it. Mm-hmm. If, it's from, if it's from Burgundy, and it's red, you know it's Pinot Noir. If it's from Burgundy and white, you know it's Chardonnay. If it's, if it's red and from Beaujolais, you know it's a, a Gamay grape. If it is red and for, from Bordeaux, you know it's going to be a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Cab Franc, and Merlot. And so uh, they've been talking about terroir forever and ever. And, and so what we, there are three transparent grapes in the world that really show terroir the best. And that is where the flavors come through and are dictated by the soils, et cetera, uh, those five factors that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of those is Riesling. And uh, there are stories about going up and down uh, uh, the, the Rhine River in Germany. And, and here are two vineyards, one next to another, ex- next to another. Same winemaker, same year. Everything's the same except the soils, and the, the wines will be completely different. That's terroir. Uh, secondly, Chardonnay is another one that shows this, but Chardonnay, we over oak it here in the United States. I and, hate oaked white wine. Yes. It's so gross. Yeah. I, I can't stand and, it. And, 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 and a lot of that big buttery malolactic fermentation. And so it overshadows it. Right. What we're doing here in Oregon, we can't compete with the Californians who do it that style. So we have very little oak and no malolactic. And so it's what we call fruit forward, more mm. like Burgundy produces it. And you really can start tasting the, 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 the characteristics. The third one is Pinot Noir. 
Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned red grape as compared to all of the other red grapes. Uh, and so it, the varietal characteristics don't overshadow the flavors that you've got. And you can actually pick up very easily the differences in the flavors of the, the wines, mm-hmm. where when you have a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Merlot or a Syrah or a Zinfandel, those varietals really dominate the flavors. And now if you are really good, you can pick up the subtleties of different parent materials or climates or things like that. But in the Pinot Noir, it really picks it up. And so Mm -hmm. here in the Willamette Valley, where we are right here, uh, it is cool climate. And so this is the land of Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, and the German style, and Chardonnay. So we, we have all of these grapes and wines that really show the terroir and we have three major soils that we have here. And so we have, in a very, very short distance, you can get three different types of pinots and flavors of pinots because we have the different parent materials. And it's cooler here. And, and you, you mentioned early on that you want, a, you want a drier climate. Oregon doesn't seem like a very dry climate. Oh, it is. <laughs> when, do we, when do we in Oregon invite our friends to come to Oregon? It's always July, September, and uh, October. Uh, uh, and and uh, July, August, and September. It doesn't rain those months. Mm. This is what we call a xeric moisture regime. It just is dry. And that's good because you don't get the funguses uh, uh, and the rot on the grapes. Uh, So you don't have to, uh, first of all, you don't have to spray them a lot. Whereas back in the humid eastern part of the United States, they'll generally uh, 14, 15 times a year spray to get rid of all of the fungus Mm -hmm. and the the, uh, molds that you may be running into. Uh, Secondly, it stresses the grapes out, uh, not having a lot of water. Uh, and so all that flavor goes into the grapes, and that's what the winemaker really wants. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I <laughs> a lot of what I know about wine, which is very little, I got from the movie Sideways, of course, which is one of the most cliche things. But, you know, they talk about wanting the grape to suffer. Uh, and that's true. Uh, and it, it, so it's interesting because you said, uh, you know, you, you, in, uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that that uh, some places there's they're too nutrient rich. Right. You actually want less nutrients. Um, it, why why is that? Because with regular grapes, not for wine, this isn't not the case, right? Exactly. And so they don't they don't cut back the amount of production. And you can so Concord grapes, which go into Welch's grape juice, uh, the number one state in the United States for the production of these is Washington, right next to us. So when you're in Eastern Washington and you look in the vineyards, and there are lots of vineyards over there, uh, if they are nice, beautiful rows and well uh, trimmed, etc., you know those are great for wine but if it's just berserk they're just going everywhere and they're irrigating all the time uh those are going to be concord grapes and those are going to be going into grape juice and they want six seven tons an acre whereas in your grapes for wines maybe two tons per acre therefore you're concentrating everything there so the more nutrients they have or the more water that you have got what happens is the plant is putting all that energy into leaves and stems and leaves and stems, mm-hmm. uh, and then not into the grape. But when it comes back to life in the spring, it says, you know, what is my raison d'etre, my reason <laughs> of being? It's to reproduce, and you've got to put that energy into the grape. And if it looks around and it has lots of nutrients in the soils and lots of water, so, oh, my God, life is easy. I will just kind of have fun, grow leaves and stems and leaves and stems. <laughs> and then by the end of the season, when the temperature starts dropping down, and you only have 16, 17% sugar or 16, 17 bricks. The winemaker's a little mad at you because you've been growing the leaves and stems and not the, the grapes. So what you want to do is have it focus and just put a nut, all that energy into the grapes. And then you get a really, really high quality grape and a high quality wine. Um, we, we did an episode not too long ago about life history and, um, and talked about, uh, uh humans, um, uh, uh, having early onset puberty when they're in areas of of poverty and and um, where where resources are less limited and it's it's a bit more complicated for humans obviously but but that's uh, that's so interesting that you make them suffer a little and so they'll just start reproducing um, quicker when there's when there's not the resources that they need. Yeah, and so the the soils that are the poorest mm. are the ones that produce the best ones. So here in Oregon where we don't uh, sorry, the Willamette Valley where we don't irrigate, uh therefore we have to have l- low nutrient soils. 
So uh, a professor at University of Oregon, Greg Retallick, and myself just came out with an article that just was published this month. Uh, and the front page of the journal had red soils. And so the redder, the better, because the red means that you have lots of iron oxides and that is a highly weathered uh, soil, and it's low in nutrients, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and phosphorus. And so there's just enough nutrients to keep the plant alive, but not too many nutrients that you have got. Uh, and, and so if we don't irrigate, we can't control the vigor of the plant with water. Eastern Washington, Southern California, and, and California, uh, they, a lot of their soils are very, very nutrient-rich, lots of nutrients in it, like the, the calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, phosphorus. And so how do they limit the vigor? Irrigation. I and see. so you give just enough water to keep it alive. Uh, and so if you've got nutrient-rich soils, uh, the way you do this through water. Now, if you have nutrient-rich soils in a, uh, an area where you don't irrigate, you're, you're going to have to be trimming that plant four or five times a season to cut it back, and it's very expensive. Right, because it's doing too well. Yeah, it's doing um, too well. So I, I still don't quite understand why is it that you can't just get your grapes from the grocery store and use those to make wine. Why, why is there such a dramatic difference in, in the taste? And, and, and what you want is a, a sugar-rich grapes. So the Vitus vinifera oh, are see. very, very sugar-rich. Um, and your Thompson seedless grapes that you get in the store, uh, they have different flavors. They, they will have not quite as high a sugar content, but they're nice oh, and sweet. Okay. Uh, and then a, a perfect grape is going to have very thick skin uh, and low volume of the grape. Uh, and, and therefore, you will have, a, a, especially for the red grapes, you'll have a very, very dark red color, which you really want, because all of the color... Uh, for most of your red grapes is coming out of the skin. When you press the grape, it's it, grape juice. It is going to be clear. Mm. Uh, but then once you you leave it on the, uh, the the skins on the grape juice for a week, two weeks, or whatever it is, it will give that red color. It'll give a deep color, and that's where you get all your really neat uh, flavors. Hmm. So um, I'm curious because I'm from Wisconsin originally, uh, not exactly wine country. But they have wineries. <laughs> they do have wineries. Yes. Every every uh, one of the 50 states in the United States and about half of the provinces in Canada have wineries. Hmm. Uh, now, the in the Midwest uh, of the United States, so Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, and Iowa, and up Illinois, et cetera, those are really cold climates in the wintertime. And they, uh, most of the grapes that we grow there are what we call American hybrids. Uh, and so it's, they've taken an American rootstock and combined it with a French grape. Norton is the uh, normal one that they grow there, but they have a whole bunch of other ones. And they are specifically designed for the really cold winters because otherwise the plants will just all die. The Vitus vinifera don't do well once the temperature gets below a negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Um, so they're different grapes. I don't think they're as good, but they're not bad. Mm. Um, it, it, uh, but uh, you have to kind of have the right grape for the right area. And, and so you have the, the cool climate, intermediate, warm, warm, and hot. Uh, so we're cool climate. So I mentioned this is the land of Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, and Chardonnay, and German styles. But once you get into the heavier reds, then you're into the Cabernets, Syrahs, Merlots, et cetera. And when you're really hot, then you're into the Zinfandels and the Nebbiola and the um, uh, Italian and Spanish varieties. Mm. What about the uh, South American Wines. Well, most of the, you know, the major grape growing areas in South America, uh, Chile, uh, is number three in the world in the production in the Southern Hemisphere. Argentina is number two, uh, and Brazil is number five. The other two are Australia and South Africa. Those round out the number five. Uh, and, and most of the grapes that they grow down there now are Vitus vinifera. So Cabernets, uh, but, uh, I think my favorite Malbec in the whole world comes from Mendoza, Argentina. Uh, and then my favorite, Carmenere, it actually comes from Chile. But those are all grapes that were originally coming from Bordeaux and, and Burgundy and France. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so now in, in, in South, uh, South America, most of the grape-growing areas are growing grapes that we know around the rest of the world. I see. So I have... Uh, let me backtrack one second and because I have this... Uh, 
similar kind of question to why we don't use like the grocery store grapes for growing wine. So I went to this winery in Wisconsin and I wanted to feel, I, I try to, anytime I go wine tasting, I try to buy at least one bottle to support them and everything. But I couldn't even get myself to because it was, they used like all these other fruits to make wine out of, like raspberries and cherries and stuff like that. And it tastes like a mixture of rubbing alcohol and cough syrup to me. And it was just some of, probably the worst alcohol that I've ever tasted in my entire life. This was around the Milwaukee area. And I I was curious, why, why can't you use other other berries why why aren't other berries good for making wine you can as long as it has sugar in it you can make a wine out of it right and so in those early days in switzerland when i was making wine with my students we made dandelion wine really uh mead Hmm. mead is the oldest wine and that's Honey. honey yeah that you've got uh, and and so we have made cantaloupe wine uh, here in Oregon. We really make great berry wines. So really? as raspberry wines, uh, boysenberry, blackberry, Marionberry wines. I love them. Well, maybe it was just the the, the, the local winery. The, the, the local there. winery wasn't the and, one. That and was. so here we've been doing those berry wines uh, for forty, fifty, sixty years. Yeah, raspberry and, wine. That sounds fantastic to me. Yeah. And, and it's, I had a strawberry wine recently. Mm. It wasn't sweet. Some of the berry wines can be sweet, but uh, the one that I had was not. And oh my God, was it a very, very good wine? So it just it all depends upon the winemaker that you have got. So you, I see. as long as it has any sugar in there that can be fermented by the yeast, and the yeast ter- taking the sugar and turning it into alcohol, um, it will produce a wine. Hmm. So I I lived in Texas for a couple of years, and I. Went to a winery there, but uh, and it seems that's very hot, very dry there. That seems like it would be prime conditions for it is. for making. It is. And, it and, is. And, and so, in the United States, if you look at all of the number of wineries, the number one state is California. Number two is Washington. Number three is uh, Oregon. Number four is New York, and number five is Texas. Mm. Uh, and so Texas definitely has the the heat, and so they get into the heavy reds, so the Cabernets, the Merlots, Syrahs, etc. Uh, and then uh, uh, they also have a lot of limestone, and and a lot of the grapes do very well on limestone, mm. uh, which is very common bedrock there. Uh, and and so I've I've tasted uh, maybe twenty different wineries in Texas. And uh, not too bad. Uh, they're in infancy. It takes a while for the winemakers to actually uh, learn how to make wines in their particular areas. Right. I, in the early days, they weren't very good. But every time I keep going back, get, they get better and better. So um, I'm, I'm curious. I'd never heard of a New York wine before. What kind of wines are they making? Well, they, they, they are really one of the first grape-growing areas. Uh, the Finger Lakes area of eastern uh, or western New York is cool climate. So they were famous for the Rieslings, for instance, and then uh, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, uh, and Chardonnay. Uh, but the other area they, is a warm climate area of New York is um, uh, Long Island. They grow, They have enough heat units to grow cabs, merlots, and syrahs out there. Uh, but they also have Mogan David, Ripple, and some of these large volume wineries. Uh, and Mogan David is a kosher type of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the volume-wise, that puts them up there. Uh, but they're well-established and around for a long time. But some of the best Rieslings in the United States are coming out of the Finger Lakes area of uh, New York. Rieslings was my first wine that I enjoyed. I think that's a lot of people's first because it's a sweeter white wine. Yeah, and, and and so when I was in college, Blue Nun was the the dominant one, and mm. so this is coming from Germany, and those are three to five percent residual sugar, and so when you are beginning to drink wines, that sweetness is oh, that's not too bad, and you just keep having more and more and more. Right. Once. Uh, once you drink a lot more wine, you get you the the sugar content goes down. Right. Uh, and so in, in in our area here, we're producing an awful lot of Rieslings, Gewurztraminers, Mueller, Turgaus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 the, in fact, I'm going to be at a winery tomorrow, and they have three different parent materials, so three different terroirs, and each one of those Rieslings that they have, they will have dry, intermediate dry, and 
traditional, which is 3%. I'm sorry, what's parent material mean? Uh, so parent material is the soil or the oh, geology oh, okay. uh, that is growing in. Okay. And, and so therefore, three different geologies, three different soils, and then three different uh, parent materials and wines. And so, uh, so people get a choice to, between the, uh, the dry and the, the traditional or the sweet, which is 3%. Uh, and then, so the traditional German style is the other. But now you go uh, to Germany now, and they're also getting into the dry Riesling, too. Hmm. Uh, so the tastes have changed. Yeah, that seems the natural progression. Then you go to dry white, and then you switch over to red yes. eventually. And, yeah. I, and I, I love red wine now. Yeah. It's all I drink. And, and, and so, you know, that's you know, very, very important. Sometimes if you have a real cold year, a cold summer, you'll have high acidity. Uh, and so sometimes it's good to have some sweetness to balance it off. You want to balance wine between that acidity and the, the sugar. So sometimes you need a little bit of sugar in there. And so, but also the taste of the local people. And so I was giving a talk in Missouri, uh, and at a university a few years ago. And they said, well, let's just go down to the local winery here because it's the largest winery in the whole state of Missouri. 50,000 cases, which is huge numbers. And the, the head winemaker and the president are going to take us around. So we did. And so we went through all of the white wines, and they were very good. And a lot of these were these American um, uh, varietals uh, uh, that we have got. And uh, then we got to the red wine, and it was a Norton. And and I asked the winemaker, and he was uh, from New Zealand. I said, you know, this just doesn't taste right. What's the residual sugar of this? And normal white red wines are zero zero sugar. I mean, they just ferment oh. everything out. It was ten percent residual sugar. Huge. I mean, that was a sweet sea red wine. And, and so Riesling is like three to five percent. So this yeah. is twice as sweet yes. As, and this okay. is for a red wine. And I asked the winemaker. I mean, this is bizarre. And he says. It sells. Everybody loves it. Hmm. And so the taste of the mid-continent are sweeter than they are on the coasts. Do you know what meat is? Because meat is very sweet. It is. It is. But people like, uh, you know, when they yeah. uh, drink mead, they know it's going to be sweet. And it's a natural honey. So so it's, it's good. Um, so that's like 15% or something like well, that? Well, it probably. depends. I yeah. mean, in, in all of these, uh, you go from anywhere from 6% up to uh, uh, over 20%. So I'm curious, so you start in the 60s in this um, un, kind of unheard of place, Napa Valley. What was it that, uh, why did Napa Valley then become the place that it is today? Was, the, was, there, was there a change in um, the conditions or, or was it just that more people were drinking wine? Or Well, a couple of things. First of all, it is a perfect grape growing area. Mm -hmm. And so it's got lots of heat units, so it's got the warmth that you need for your cabs, Merlots, Syrahs, Sauvignon Blancs. Uh, and, and secondly, uh, they just, they don't have a lot of rain, rainfall, uh, and, and which screws up the crops. And so every year was a good year, year after year after year. But it was, uh, there was a movie a couple of years ago. You mentioned Sideways, which was an incredible movie. Paul Giamatti is one of my favorite actors. Mine and, too. He's and, in this new show, Billions. Oh, yeah, I'll, Showtime. Have, I'll, should, I'll, I'll have to see that too. Well, he was just in San Andreas being a geologist. Oh, and he was the geophysicist. And uh, hmm. uh, scientifically, that wasn't the greatest movie, but he did a great job. And then my other favorite geological actor, Dwayne the Rock Johnston, was in that too. <laughs> of course. Uh, and, and, and so Sideways really uh, made Pinot Noir take off. And so in Oregon, if people who are drinking Merlot stopped drinking Merlot and started picking up and drinking uh, Pinot Noir. Wow. And so it did a, a lot for Oregon wines because uh, Oregon uh, Willamette Valley wines. And so that was good. But there's another movie out called Bottle Shock. And it is the story of how I've California that, yeah. versus uh, wine tasting in, in France. Uh, and uh, a guy from uh, – a British guy uh, who also lived in Paris and had a wine shop in Paris said, I'm going to go out to California, and I'm going to visit the vineyards because everybody says, you know, California is just, you know – New world, the grapes aren't going to be good. And he started tasting the wines, and he kept on liking them. And they were some really, really good ones. And whether it was Stag's Leap or whatever, he just went, I can't believe it. And he just kept on saying, these wines are good. And so in the end, uh, he convinced the California winemakers to have a wine tasting comparing California versus French wines. 
And so they did the actual tasting in France, and all of the, if I get it correctly, the, all of the, uh, the wine tasters were all French. Hmm. And so they had equal numbers of, it was all blind tasting, so you didn't know what you were tasting. And so it was X number of California whites versus X number of uh, whites from uh, France, and then did the same thing for reds. Uh, and in both of them, the, the wine that won was Californian. And it blew the French away that they had chosen California ones. That was the shock of the bottle. Uh, and that it turned the heads of all of the connoisseurs in the world. And they saying, whoa, these California wines are doing very, very well versus uh, the famous French. Oh, that I, got it going. I thought that bottle shock was, was, um, had something to do with the process, like something going wrong in the process. Wasn't that? I, I, I don't have the best memory of that movie. It was. But... And, and, and uh, so the, the white wine that they were going to be uh, using uh, that, uh, that actually went on to win, uh, what happened was it, it, it really got screwed up. And it, had, uh, it was cloudy. I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and how could they take this wine uh, to France because it had something wrong with it? And I can't remember all the details, but yeah. in the end, they, it, it all clarified, uh, and they took it, and that's the one that won the white wine hmm. championship. Um, so, so when did, uh, when did Oregon start and, and when did, because I'm, I'm, uh, I was born in the, um, tri cities of Washington. Yeah. And so I've been, and my parents moved when I was one, but I've been back a few times and, um, and, uh, they, they have, uh, some pretty good wine country out there from, from oh what I hear. Right? So Southeastern or, uh, Washington is absolutely great wine growing area, more heat units over there. Uh, it's all irrigated land, and, and I think the best Syrahs in the United States are coming from over there. Hmm. Uh, but their Cabernets, uh, Merlot, Syrahs, Malbec, all of the big heavy reds are really, really, really good over there. Uh, and, and so it's the heat units that are very important over there. Uh, the uh, soils are primarily Missoula flood sediments, which are uh, way too nutrient-rich, but you control the vigor with irrigation. You wrote a book about the Missoula floods. I did. I did write a book. What's about the name of it? It's called Cataclysms on the Columbia: The Great Missoula Floods. Oh, great! We'll put a link to it on the yeah. uh, on the so, site. So it's good. So uh, Oregon started its winemaking in the early '60s, and a couple of guys who were learning enology and viticulture—that is how to make wines—at University of California Davis, which is our mecca of winemaking in the United States—wanted to make Pinot Noir. And the professor said, well, we really can't grow great Pinot Noir in California. It's, it's, it's too warm. Go north uh, up to Oregon. That would be the perfect climate. And so, so we had one went to southern Oregon, one went to the Willamette Valley. David Lett is the one who came to the Willamette Valley. They, both of them came up in 1961, uh, and they started planting. So by the late 60s, uh, we had um, five wineries in Oregon, modern Oregon post uh, uh, the um, period of time when we did uh, we couldn't uh, have alcoholic beverages uh, back in the twenties, uh, and and so they um, uh, they it just took off. And then when I moved back to Oregon in nineteen ninety, we had ninety wineries in the whole state. Now we have over seven hundred wineries, and we have sixteen or seventeen different AVAs, viticultural areas. That is. Uh, basically the terroir. Once the terroir changes, you put a different label on yours. Willamette Valley is the first one, but now we have the Columbia Gorge. Uh, we have the Umpqua region in southern Oregon, the Rogue Valley, the Applegate, the Illinois Valley. Uh, so those are AVAs. What do you mean when once it changes? Uh, so, so, the the same... so you go from warm climate to cold climate, for instance. Uh, that is a change in the terroir. The geology. Oh, changes. I thought you meant like the same vineyard change. No, no. no oh, oh no. okay. So, I was confused. So uh, when you when you apply uh, to for a license to label a certain area in AVA, you've got to define the soils, the climatology, uh, water holding compar- uh, uh, characteristics, and things like that. And you're basically defining the terroir. Um. Well, related to that, as as a season goes by, aren't they? Aren't they? I mean, I know you want um, kind of 
uh, less nutrients in the soil anyway, but aren't they losing nutrients each season or are they having to do some but sort of But you're also having weathering of the soil and you're breaking down the rocks into new nutrients. And so the ones that oh. are, uh, you know, over millions of years, uh, they lost a certain amount, but the, they lose very, very slowly. So no, it's not going to affect. I see. And, and there's some areas, is it, around here in Washington that, that have, um, some, some of, uh, ash in the soil from. Yes. And especially up in Washington. When, when was the, the big, the big one with Mount St. Helens? 1980. Yeah. 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 That was right. I was born on May 25th, 1980. My parents, I I just wanted to make sure I was talking about the same thing. Yeah. My parents said there was like soot everywhere all over the place. And there was ash all over Eastern Washington. In fact, uh, the apple crop that next year was one of the best that they ever had on record. And, and people say it may have been related to the amount of ash that fell in eastern Washington and Yakima. Hmm. What, why does ash, um, does ash contain nutrients or something? Yeah, it does. And, uh, and, and so it's basically ground up rock. It's, hmm. it's molten rock that is blown up into the atmosphere and is very, very small. It's less than 0.0. Or, 0.05 millimeters in diameter, and so it has a lot of surface area. And so it has a lot of calcium, magnesium, potassium uh, that is available to, uh, for the plants to pick up. So if, uh, if, if someone lives in Oregon or they're, they're coming to visit Portland, which I encourage, it's one of my favorite cities in the country, where, where would you recommend people go wine tasting? What are some of your favorite places? Well, uh, uh, the most logical places are where wine winemaking started. So just southwest of here, and about 45 minutes away, we have the Dundee Hills. Uh, and the Dundee Hills are primarily uplifted uh, volcanic rocks. The major soil is called the Jory soil uh, and make great wines. But just beyond it, you've got the uplifted uh, coast range soils. Uh, and, and they produce a different type of Pinot Noir. Uh, it's mostly the Willa Kenzie type of soil. Uh, and so great Pinots and Chardonnays, et cetera. And then this way, uh, you've got Shahala Mountain, which is also all southwest of Portland. Uh, you've got some very, very good um, mountains, but the Laurelwood soil. So windblown silt has been mixed in with the soil and weathered into little squares or little rounded balls we call piezolites. Those are the three major soils that you have got. Uh, and then uh, all up and down the Willamette Valley, not out in the middle of the Willamette Valley, but on the edges, you have got the these older soils that are highly weathered, uh, and so you're going to find a lot of them there. So that's one. Uh, number two, in Portland, we have over 25 wineries in Portland. Mm. Uh, they source their grapes. We have farmers. We have over 950 vineyards in Oregon. So a lot of them just grow the grapes and then sell them to wineries. And so in Portland, we have uh, wineries just they're here. They have no vineyards. They just buy from the farmers. One of my favorite ones, Hip Chicks Do Wine. I mean, uh, and so th- these are all in the Portland area. Uh, other areas, just up the Columbia Gorge. We share it with Oregon and Washington, both sides. Warmer climate uh, from Hood River up to the Dalles. Absolutely great uh, wines. And they are... Th- 40 different wineries that are up there. Or and Mount Hood's a wonderful place to visit anyway. Oh, it is. Yeah. And the Columbia Gorge is phenomenal to get through on your way up to the wine-tasting areas. Mm. Uh, as you go south, Roseburg, and that is part of the Umpqua Valley. They have some great wineries that are down there. Just a little further south, uh, Medford and Ashland, that's the Rogue Valley. Really, really good. Uh, and then you go over to, to the valley right next to it, Applegate. All warmer climate down there. Or you go over to Cave Junction. Uh, Illinois Valley, and it's cool climate, and so you've got great ones. And so uh, all over Oregon, you have got these areas for wine tasting, and it's fun to taste them all. Yeah, I think I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, Oceanside this weekend, and yeah, that, that would be close-ish to Dendy Hills then? Not, not too You'll far go from right that. on your way down there. You will go through uh, wine country. Ah, I, I should check that out. I'm, uh, you mentioned Pinot Noir. Pinot, Pinot Noir is probably in my, my top three. Um, I drink quite a bit of it. I, I, what is it that, so I, uh, let's say I want to, um, I want to start my own vineyard and I want to make just Pinot Noir and I can pick anywhere in the world. What, what exactly am I looking for? Um, like what, what's the most ideal conditions for making Pinot Noir? 
All right, number one, you got to look at the climate. Uh, and so you have to have your average temperature and your what we call growing degree days. Uh, and so this is the, during the year, how many hours of a year are the temperatures over 50 degrees Fahrenheit? And that, and so what you read, to grow a cool climate grape, you need at least 2,000 growing degree days uh, or these hours up to about uh, 25, 2,600 uh, uh, of these. Uh, and so the Willamette Valley, uh, Burgundy is the type locality, the, the, the most famous place in the world. Uh, Willamette Valley is second. California makes some good ones too. Uh, north of the Napa Valley, you have the Russian River Valley and then some of the valleys that are close to the coast to get a lot of fog, cool things down. Though they're growing some pretty good uh, um, Pinot Noirs. And then further on south down near Santa Barbara, they're also growing some good Pinots, but they get a lot of fog coming in and cooling things down. So you want cool climate. You don't want to go. Uh, Napa Valley is just way too warm for that. Mm-hmm. And so what you try and do is match the climate up with the grape. Probably the world's greatest wine climatologist is in Southern Oregon. Greg Jones is a professor down at Southern Oregon University, and he and I do a lot of speaking on the same uh, slate a lot of the time. Uh, and he's put together a chart of the four major climate zones and the, uh, the four major types of gr- groups of grapes that you match up with those. Uh, you, you, if you tried to grow Zinfandel grapes in the Willamette Valley, they'd never ripen. Why? Because they need like 3,500 uh, growing degree day, mm-hmm. our type of things. And we only get up to maybe 2,600 here. So, you, uh, so certain grapes need high amounts of heat. Other ones don't need quite as much. What about the soil? Are you able to grow the same kind of grape in many different kinds of soil? Yes, you can. But you really, there are certain things you don't want. You don't want to have high pH. You don't want to have low pH because it will impede the nutrient uptakes of certain things. You don't want to have you go out in the desert and have a lot of salt in the soil. That will also impede certain things. So I have a list of about 10 different characteristics that you have to look for. Uh, some of the soils will be shallow. Some of them will be deep. Uh, for instance, Syrah likes a deeper soil. Chardonnay likes a, a shallow soil. Or maybe it's vice versa on that. Uh, and so you try and match the, the characteristics of the soils to the, the others. Uh, uh, Burgundy which, and Willamette Valley, uh, the two, they have the same climates, but the, uh, for the growing of Pinot Noir, the difference is they have primarily limestone and marl, which is a dirty limestone, whereas we have volcanic soils and sandstones and shales. So different parent materials. So the flavors will come out different. And so that is the the real difference that you can. You can probably grow a lot of your grapes in different uh, regions. It's just what type of flavor you're trying to aim at. Hmm. So why why do you not hear people talking like this about just growing strawberries or you know whatever kind of fruit production? Is is the is the um, uh, the environment and geology just just as um, important for growing good pineapples or, I mean, why, why, you know what I'm saying? Like why people don't care. So so this term terroir is the taste of the place and it's based on the climate and the geology and the the characteristics of the grapes is now being used for many different things. Mm. I gave a talk in Vermont, and they said, oh, we use the term terroir for our maple syrups. Hmm. Different areas, different local climates, and different soils produce different flavored maple syrups. We're using it for coffee right now. Uh, and and when right. you choose your different brands, you are doing that. Mm-hmm. Beer, if you get into an IPA with all the hops, that brewmaster is going to list every one of the hops and where it's from. That is terroir. Right. Uh, and, and a new thing that we are starting to develop here in Oregon is the terroir of cannabis, of marijuana. Right. Now, now majority of the marijuana that is grown is grown in artificial soils under lights. Uh, but there's a group in Southern Oregon that's called Sunlight, uh, hmm. uh, and they are the outdoor growers, and they are looking at comparing the terroir differences of the different types of marijuana that they have. Uh, oysters. Just last week, I learned Oregon Field Guide here in Oregon had a, a program on marijuana. That is, which bay the oysters come out of are going to have different flavors based on the characteristics of the, the water that they're taking in and the, the characteristics of that bay. That is, again, terroir. Hmm. And so cheeses have, 
have terroir differences. And so many, many different foods. And so this is a term that started out in wine and now has great applications to everything. It's the taste of the place. Yeah, I, I guess I... Uh... I, I mean, I I live in California, so they have medical marijuana there, and and you do hear people talking about. I mean, it's always like some silly name like purple haze or some something like that. But I guess that's what they're talking about when they're talking about those different strains and uh, and different varieties. I, it, it seems like beers really starting to all the different microbrews and everything now are are really getting quite popular. Um, Where you get your hops, and, and hops are all related to. Um, the the soils and the climate. Hmm. So terroir. Um, all right. Well, I have a. I, I thought we'd maybe wrap up with just going through two, my two other favorite wines. But before we do that, um, what uh, I, I have each one of my my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. So, uh, what nonprofit would you like to give a shout out for? Well, I, I'm associated with many of them, and it's difficult to choose, but. I just came here from my Rotary meeting. And so Rotary is an international service group, 1.3 million Rotarians around the world, over 150 countries, uh, all reaching out during local service projects and then international ones. We are out there trying to, for instance, uh, cure polio. When we started in the 1980s, there were 150 countries in the world with polio. Now we're down to one. Mm. And so it would be really nice to eradicate that. And, uh, and it's an absolutely great organization. Uh, uh, foreign exchange students. Uh, our club sends three students overseas, high school kids. We get three coming in. It's the largest exchange program uh, in the world. Uh, not only kids going from the United States to France, but kids from France going to Australia, Australia to South Africa. And uh, it's a, just a great organization. I have many, many great friends. And we have lots of uh, outreach projects, uh, all helping in, in, for our club here in Portland, kids. So what is the Rotary Club exactly? Is it like a think tank of sorts? No, it's a weekly meeting that mm -hmm. is held. My club's got 340 members, so we're one of the oldest ones in the world, oldest in Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's young and vibrant. And um, so we have a speaker come in each week. We have a lunch, to, lunch together. Some of them are breakfast. Some of them are evening meetings. Uh, and then you... Uh, have other social activities. I'm taking uh, my group out wine tasting in June. We're taking a hike up to Mount St. Helens coming up in August. Uh, and so lots of different things. Mm. You have local projects and then international projects. All right. Wonderful. Well, everyone um, can go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and there will be a link where you can learn more and uh, donate to the Rotary Club. Um, so... Uh, lastly, I thought we'd maybe wrap up with, uh, I just want to go through a few more of my um, favorite wines and, and maybe have you tell me a little bit more about them so I can impress all of my, <laughs> all of my friends with some, some wine talk. So I'll, I'll just give you, one, I like champagne, I like, um, and, and then I like Bordeaux, and I like Malbecs. Those are, those are probably my other three favorite um, things to drink. So, so can you... Uh, uh, give me a little spiel on on each one of those and what what the regions are like. What um, where they're coming and so from. So first of all, champagne is a bubbly type of wine, right? And uh, and you only can use the term champagne if you are uh, if it is produced in the Champagne region of northern France. So it's a cool climate uh, area. What they do is they take a cool climate grape and they will ferment, and then the last part of fermentation occurs in the bottle. And so the carbon dioxide that is normally given off in the fermentation process stays in the bottle, and that, then you have bubbly. Uh, and uh, so uh, any other place in the world that you have uh, this style, you can't call it champagne, even though we do. Uh, it has to be uh, uh, another name. Sparkling wine is generally what we do. But they're low alcohol, so 10 to 12% alcohol wines. Some can be a little more sweet. Some are dry. It depends upon uh, which winery that you have got, but they will have that, that, that beautiful, sharp, crisp flavor uh, that you get. Uh, and we generally use these for celebrations. The interesting thing, all around the world, you're getting, seeing more and more people going and producing sparkling wines. Uh, and uh, when I was in Brazil just this last fall, uh, every winery had sparkling wine, and, and that's the, the number one group of wines that is being produced down there. 
which is quite interesting. So that's one. Uh, the second one that you mentioned was Bordeaux, mm-hmm. and that's Mecca. That is the primo, primo, uh, great growing area. It's a warm climate. Uh, and almost all of their wines are going to be blended. Now, now they, because of the American influence and influence from other countries, uh, the, the vineyards will grow Cabernet Sauvignon. They'll grow Merlot. They will grow Malbec. They'll do Cab Franc. Uh, they will, all of the big heavy reds. Uh, and they, the wine, uh, and they will bottle some just pure Cabernet, pure Merlot, et cetera. But traditionally, uh, what they do is they ferment them individually, and then the winemakers sit down and they say, do we use 42% of the Cabernet Sauvignon or 41%? Do we use 15% Merlot or do we use 25 And they, they mix them every year to make the perfect blend. And so it's a combination of uh, uh, terroir, but also the winemaker. Winemaker is the most important factor in differences in the flavors. I didn't mention that earlier, that and vineyard techniques, which, which direction do the rows go, what type of trellis, uh, do you have cover crop and things like that. And so Bordeaux is typically a blended wine and, and really, really, really good. Uh, and then the third one that you had mentioned was Malbec. That is one varietal of, uh, of, of, of grape, and that's one of these Vitus vinifera ones. Uh, in Bordeaux, it's used as one of the third, uh, uh, third or fourth uh, grapes that is mixed in with the Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, but then you go down to Mendoza, Argentina. Uh, why, my God, their Malbecs just knock your socks off. Uh, and it's really, really good. A big heavy red is what it is. Uh, and I love them. Uh, here in the United States, we're uh, in California and Southern Oregon, Eastern Washington, everybody is growing Malbecs. Uh, I don't think we kind of have gotten to the point where we're equaling um, a Mendoza, but uh, and Mod- Mendoza not only have the the greatest ones out there, I think, but secondly, the cheapest ones. So it's pretty good. So I want my um, I want my Malbec from Argentina, right? Right. right. And and where do I where do I want um, my uh, Bordeaux? Uh, well, Bordeaux only comes from one region. Yeah, but um, so in, in many other places they call the wine claret, C L A. Uh, oh, that's R E T, and so I, I I did a wine tasting with our students just last week, and it was a claret that was made uh, in um, Carlton, Oregon. So you can do that. And this again, it's a blend. I see. So I have two I have two other little questions that popped up. One, what what is a rosé exactly? What are they? So rosé is going to be a pink type of wine, uh, and it is uh, you take the grapes. It's uh, they're generally red grapes. Uh, and then what you do is when you press them, the grape juice that comes out is white, and that's white wine. But what you do is you leave the skins on that uh, the grape in fermentation for a day, two, three days, and it'll give a pink color. The longer the the time you are in contact, the more pink, the darker pink it gets. Uh, we did a wine reception on Saturday night, uh, and it was light, light pink. And the and the winemaker told me only five hours in contact, then he pressed the whole thing off. Uh, I've had darker uh, uh, red colors or pinkish colors, and that is maybe one day, maybe two days. Mm. Uh, another way of doing that is when a red wine is being fermented, you pull out some of the juice in the first and second days. Mm. Um, and, and, and what you're doing is reducing uh, juice before all of the color gets into it, so it's going to be pink in color. And what it does is it reduces the amount of ju- juice, but you keep all of the the skin's there, and so you'll give a darker color. It's a way of increasing the, the color of the grape, and that's called signe. So the, those are two ways of producing a rosé. And uh, lastly, I was curious, why is it that we drink white in rosés cold and then we have our reds at room temperature? A flavor. Because the, the reds have so many different flavors. And at room temperature... All of those uh, chemicals just explode. Mm. When you cool them down, uh, you, you lose some of that expression that is there. Uh, whereas uh, the, a lot of the white wines, you really like crispness and, 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 and the, and the rosés. Uh, I think of rosé as being a summer wine. Hot outside, I want yeah. a crisp wine. And cooling it down makes it crisp. Uh, Chardonnay, a lot of people uh, drink Chardonnay at room temperature because it has some pretty uh, neat flavors that are in there. Hmm. Uh, and, and the other German-style ones and the Pinot Gris, again, 
you like it to be crisp and so uh, cool it down that's terrific well thank you so much for uh, for um, answering my questions informing me and my audience i i know uh, a lot of people are going to be very interested in this and i'm sure a lot of listeners are as thirsty as i am right now so i think i'm actually going to go and meet a friend for a glass of wine uh, but thank you scott burns for joining me and, and thank you for the chance to come and talk uh, about wine and the relationship with to terroir my aim in life is to create terroirists around the rest of the world <laughs> we aren't going to tell homeland security in the united states but you're uh, creating a war for terroir that's right and and, and when people go into tasting rooms, you ask what is the grape varietal that you have, but also what the year is, that, because every year is going to be different. Uh, and then secondly, what are the soils that are going into it? What is the geology? Why do some take, why, why do some take years and some why, – why do some people want wines that are like 30 years old or whatever? Oh, yeah, because – so the, the ones that – the really older wines, those generally are all heavy reds. Cabs, Merlots, uh, Syrahs, and Bordeaux blends. Uh, and they, they uh, mature, and some get better and better with age. And so th- that's why it's nice to have those. Pinot Noir, when it is put into the bottle and, and is released, it's ready to drink. Mm-hmm. It'll get a little bit better with age, but not much. White wines you drink within the first five, six years. And the, and so, but the, the heavier reds with the, the, the darker red colors, uh, they, they mature and get better in the bottle. And then is there like a peak before they start then getting worse? Yeah, I've, I've had some, like, th- I had a 30 bottle of wine the other night. Uh, the guy paid 500 bucks for it. Was, oh. yeah, not very good. Oh, uh, it, it was man. over the peak. And, uh, and so. Uh, it, it depends upon the quality of the cork and, and a lot of different things, too. So, Well, uh, very cool. I, I hope I could have you back sometime to talk about, like, earthquakes and mudslides, which uh, which Which are I always fun to talk about, an, too. An They're part of my bailiwick. That, I, I live in L.A., so yeah, it's something I that I, I I'm concerned about. So thank about. you very much for the, yeah, thank the you. chance to talk a little bit about terroir and wine. All right, and thank you, everyone, for listening and being curious. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next week on the program... I re- just recently recorded. I'm so jazzed right now, guys. Do I say that a lot? I do mean it. If I say it, I mean it. I wouldn't lie to you guys. Um, this is really, really exciting. Um, I did my first live Here We Are podcast. It's something I'm hoping to do a lot more of after this last one. It was very, very successful. It was a small audience, which is what I expected. It was like a 5.30 show, and we didn't really know if people were going to be interested and whatnot. It was, I was really happy with the turnout, actually, but I was especially happy with uh, how well it went. It was a very entertaining, fun show in uh, Wilmington. I got I got three different uh, scientists from the psychology department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And we talked a lot about um, personality differences. Oh, this is fun. Um, I took a, a personality test. I, we, we've talked about the big five personality test on here before, right? Um, openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, um, uh, stability and extroversion, stability sometimes called neuroticism. Um, if if not, you may be f- familiar. It's a it's kind of been in the news um, in the last week or so uh, because some some guy got a bit of media attention for a psychologist analyzing um, Donald Trump's uh, personality profile and. So, which, by the way, um, if you haven't seen that, you should Google that. It makes for interesting read and and kind of see how how um, science applies to uh, you know to real life stuff and to the news and current events and uh, it brings it all together. So check that out. But but um, maybe I'll post something on my Twitter account about it at Here We Pod. That will be a good thing. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I'm hoping to post on there. So anyway, next week, first live podcast. Um, I, I'm hoping, um, I did everything right with the recording and hopefully the audio will sound good. I know 
that my producer, Ramin Nazer, is going to do his damnedest to correct whatever uh, horrible setup that and, and raw audio that I'm giving him. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that sounds really good. Uh, we got some comments recently from you guys saying that the last episode on hacking the audio, there was a notable improvement. And... Um, so Ramin's been working very hard on this, and I've been trying to make some adjustments on my end um, as well to improve uh, the just getting the raw recording um, initially. And and so we got we've been getting some really positive feedback from that. So I hope that um, that continues, and that's all thanks to you guys um, offering some suggestions and uh, some constructive criticism here and there. Always very much appreciated. It, no one has ever wrote me like yelling at me and <laughs> saying the podcast is stupid or anything like that. Every single one of your suggestions have been fantastic and, and noted, and we are continuing to try to improve. So um, always, always... Your comments are welcome. Remember, you can go always go on to the herewearepodcast.com website, click on Ask a Scientist, and you're talking with me. I might I might change that uh, <laughs> originally. Originally, I thought it would be a place where people could um, could send questions that they want me to ask uh, future guests, and maybe I'll figure out a new way of doing that in the future, so I can let you guys know of upcoming guests that I'm that I'll be um, interviewing rather than just telling you the upcoming guests that I've already recorded. Um, so, you know, brainstorming new ideas. Maybe I'll change the the little banner thing so it's, um, it's just like contact Shane or something like that. A little more uh, descriptive of what is actually happening. But the point is, is if you go to the herewearepodcast.com website and click on the ask a scientist or whatever the new phrasing that I might choose that goes directly to me. And I try to get back to every single one of your emails. Sometimes what happens? I get the email. I look at it. I'm out and about, I I'm doing shows or whatever. I mean to respond the next day. I have a whole inbox full of a bunch of um, other nonsense and spam and everything else and it just gets lost your your emails are important to me i've probably missed a couple i bet i've missed five in the year and a half but if i missed your email please resend it love when you guys reach out um i love that we're building this wonderful little relationship uh with one another i like when i meet uh the podcast fans that come out to live shows and everything else i feel like we're kind of building a little bit of a community with this and um which is fantastic because hopefully i'll I'll be able to do more live shows in the future and you guys will all get to come to a live show and you'll get to uh, i had the audience ask questions and we did a little q a afterwards so much fun. You're going to love it next week. So I will uh, talk to you guys then. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's 
like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a bat. bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 